A few weeks ago, uh, we finished our series in the book of 1 Samuel, and my tradition the last few summers has been to launch a summer series. And so, so far this summer, we've had a few guest speakers the last few weeks. We'll have a couple more this summer. Next week, we'll have a guest speaker. So, uh, but in the meantime, we're going to resume a series that I started two summers ago, uh, Marks of a Healthy Christian. And so, if you have your bookmarks that we put in the bulletin a few weeks ago, we listed out the, the sermons for this quarter. And so uh, there's five topics that we're going to look to cover this summer in expositional sermons. And, and we're kicking things off this morning with uh, a healthy Christian kills sin. A healthy Christian kills sin. There are some in our world today uh, that do not like the warfare imagery. They don't, wanna, they don't wanna hear about violence, they don't wanna look at violence, they don't wanna listen to violence. And, and when the scriptures though, when the scriptures talk about sin, the images that the scriptures portray is severe. It's violent. It isn't pleasant, it's not a, a flowery picture. There's, there's a mean streak, a, a violent streak to the healthy Christian life. And we need to be careful, though. We need to be wise to ask, who is this violence against? This violence isn't against other people. It isn't other people out there. It isn't other religions. It's not Muslims or Hindus or atheists. It's, it's not violence against those of other churches. It's not violence against secular people or nominal Christians, not husbands, not wives, not kids, not rowdy neighbors or rude employers. There's a violent streak in Christianity, and this violence is against ourselves. There's a violence against us that would make, a, that would make peace with sin and with settling into peacetime mode. It's a violence against all anger and lust and enslaving desires for power, for the praise of others, for the approval of others, for, for prestige. This is our great enemy. This is where violence is pointed. There is a violent streak in Christianity, and if you read your Bible, you will see it. If you're to be a healthy Christian, you need to kill sin in your life. Friends, this is not peacetime. This is not a time to sit back and enjoy the years, pacifying sin that dwells in your heart. And I realize some today don't want to hear this message. They believe, though, in the right to bear arms and the need for wars against those that might seek to destroy our country, but they're pacifists in their souls. They're peace-loving towards their sin. And they want to pet it and nurture it and cuddle it and feed it like a bunny on their lap. They don't want to kill their sin. No, that's too graphic for them. Ed Welch, in writing an article about self-control in The Believer, said, there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand ourselves a hatred for sin. And the only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a de declaration of all-out war. And there's something about war that sharpens the senses, he says. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you're in attack mode. 
Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little nor sleep, war keeps us vigilant. Friends, there's a, a violent streak in Christianity, whether you want to believe it or not. And there is a war that needs to happen every day in the life of a healthy Christian. And I talk with Christians that seem bothered by their sin, even humiliated by their sin, but I come away wondering, do they hate their sin? Yeah, I sinned, Jeff, I, I feel bad. I, I shouldn't have sinned, but I, I did. Can we just let it go? You sin, I sin, let's just move on. That's the language. And it doesn't sound like they're ready for war against their sin. And that's the only way, friends. The only way for a healthy Christian life is all-out war against our sin. There are a couple books that I'm going to reference this morning. The first one I want to go uh, to, to mention, and really you need to go get a copy of it right away, is The Mortification of Sin by John Owen, written in the 1600s. And this book has done much for my soul as a Christian. The word mortified often implies shame or embarrassment. In fact, when I was talking about my sermon this week around the dinner table, one of my kids made that statement. Does that mean just we're ashamed? But when that word is referred to sin, it means, it means even more than that. Certainly we should be ashamed of our sin, but the scriptures teach us that we are to be actively subduing our sin. More radically, we should be killing our sin. John Owen writes, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. To mortify means to put any living thing to death. To kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of its strength and vigor and power so that it cannot act or exert or put forth any proper actings on its own. When he's saying we need to kill sin. We need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And what would happen in our lives and in our marriages and in our relationships if we were about this act of killing sin? Not focused on killing the sin in others, not preaching to everyone else but ourselves, but preaching to us, solely focused on killing the sin that lurks in our own hearts. I suspect we would have less marriages that crumble, less fights in our relationships and friendships, less turmoil with those that we live around. A healthy Christian is one that understands that the Christian life has a violent streak in it, an all-out war against sin. You might be here this morning as a visitor. Welcome. <laughs> We're talking about sin. I don't know if this is common for the churches that you visit in the area, but this is where God has led us this morning. We're happy you're here this morning, and I pray that this will be beneficial to your soul. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the foyer. We'd love to give you a copy. You're going to need the scriptures this morning. We're going to be primarily in Romans chapter 8, but there are a number of passages that we'll look at. So have your Bibles open and ready. 
Follow with me as I read Romans chapter eight. We're gonna look at verses one through 13 primarily this morning. Paul writing says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not on the flesh, but in the spirit. If it, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This morning we're gonna talk about warfare and the freedom that comes from it. And friends, this is not warfare against Satan. Do you know that Satan isn't even mentioned in the book of Romans until you get to chapter 16? We tend to think that spiritual warfare is only against Satan, against the work in our lives, and, and that's important. Don't get me wrong, but that's for another message. Battling Satan isn't nearly as important as the foothold that Satan has in your life with your sin. No one will go to hell because of Satan. That's not how it happens. People go to hell because of their sin. So this warfare in Romans 8 is so much more important than fighting against Satan. And you need to understand this, friends. My biggest enemy is not Satan. My biggest enemy is Jeff Coulter. Prideful, lustful, controlling, lazy, fleshly, rebellious, selfish, boastful, irritable, arrogant Jeff Coulter. I am my biggest enemy. Not Satan. And I would go to hell because of the sin that dwells in my heart. Not because of something or someone outside of me. Satan doesn't have enough power to send me to hell. And so Christianity is not a settle in, live at peace with the world religion like some Christians want to live that way. No, there's a violent streak in Christianity and it's not against other people in the world it's against the flesh. It's against ourselves. And the only way to be a truly healthy Christian is to kill sin. So I'm going to pray this morning. And I'm going to pray for you, friends. I pray that your eyes and ears and hearts will be open to the Spirit of God as he teaches us this morning. And so I will pray for you. You pray for me and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the text that you have brought before us this morning. 
that your word would teach us and guide us and convict us. That you would draw out from the deep recesses of our heart this morning, God, the sin that we've been neglecting or hiding or ignoring and that we would confess that to you. That we would forsake it and that we would mortify it, we would kill it. God, I ask that you would be with your people here this morning, that you would be their teacher, that the spirit would be their guide and would lead them to understanding of what your word says and that we would leave here this morning different than when we came in. And we'll give you all the honor and glory for what you'll do in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that he has given us is he's given us freedom from condemnation. Verses one through four. When we come to chapter eight, we need to remind ourselves that Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. And he begins this chapter with a glorious, beautiful, soul-charging words in verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation. No penalty, no judgment. You are, you're not put away for your sin. No one can condemn you. People can't condemn you. God can't condemn you now. Why, he says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then you're in him and you're joined to him. Then verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He has set us free. We're no longer in the bondage of sin. No longer captive, no longer held by the power of sin. Verse three, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remind yourself again, friends, you could not save yourself. Your flesh, your body is too weak. You're unable to pull yourself out of the gutter of sin. You needed to be rescued. Religion won't save you. Power won't save you. Morality won't save you. Having your dad as a pastor and elder won't save you. Going to church every week won't save you. Working at Awana won't save you. Or attending Bible studies, it won't save you. God saves you. He is the only one. He's the only one able to do it. And look back at verse three. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Only Christ perfectly met the righteous requirement of the law. And where do we read the, the law? We read it in the Old Testament. So you can't unhitch the Old Testament from the Bible. Okay, no matter what everyone says, you can't unhitch the, the Old Testament. You need the Old Testament. You need, to, you need to read it and study it and learn from it because in the Old Testament, you see the need for salvation and how every Old Testament book points forward to Christ, to his redemptive plan for his people. And before we came to know Christ, we were continually defeated by sin. There was no way out, no hope, no future, no, no plan of escape. We were locked into sin, succumbing to sin. It was only when Christ died for us was there a way out, a way of escape, a way of hope and salvation. When Christ fulfilled the law, it was fulfilled in us, allowing us to walk in the spirit. We're no longer his enemy, we're his friend. 
We were once headed to condemnation ourselves, and now we have no condemnation because we're in Jesus Christ. We have been given freedom. Second, he has given us freedom from disappointment. He has given us freedom from disappointment, verses 5 through 11. Verse 5, for those, those unbelievers who live according to the flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh. But those believers who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There are two people here, those that reject God and those that are trusting in God. In Romans 6 and 7, we hear from Paul when he talks about the flesh, that he's not talking about the the physical body. When he's talking about the deeds of the body or the deeds of the flesh, he's talking about the whole life being controlled by a self-satisfying project. And so when Paul writes that living by the flesh, it means you're trying to be your own satisfaction. You, You want to be your own savior. You want to be the one in charge. You don't want God to be in charge of your life. And you reject him. For those who are not in Christ, everything they do, their body, their life, their actions, their attitudes, everything is controlled by the fact that they want to be their own Lord. It's a self-satisfying project. They want to do what will bring them the most joy. It's about them. And then in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You see, people say that they want the latter, but really they just live for the former. They want peace, they want life, but they want it on their own terms. And Paul says you will receive death, eternal separation from God. You won't get God, you won't get eternity, you won't get peace, you get death. And the mind, this is, this is what Paul says here. What is the mind? What does he mean here? Setting their minds in the things of the flesh or setting their minds in the spirit. How, how does this work? Is this a new thing that Paul is introducing here? Well, well, quickly, we need to remember that when the Bible talks about the mind and the heart, they're usually not two different things. In our English, when we, we think of the mind, it's just our thinking. And then we think of the heart, we think of just emotions. But they're not separated in the Bible. So when Paul says, not to set your mind in the flesh. He isn't saying just don't, just don't have bad thoughts. He's saying look at yourself and realize what, what preoccupies your life, what fills your mind, what consumes you, what, what fills your heart, what consumes your heart. What are your dreams and your desires? What, what captures your imagination? In verse 7, for the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God. You realize that, unbelievers? You're hostile to God. You hate God. You hate who he is. You hate what he stands for. For the, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You, you, you can't save yourself. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't do enough good to get out of hell. And in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And listen, friends, you were created to please God. You were made to bring honor and glory to God, not yourself, not this world, not other humans. No, God. You were made to please God, whether at home or absent, whether we're to be pleasing to God, St. Corinthians says. And in the first Thessalonians, we're, we're to walk and please God, that we, we may excel still more. You were not made for yourself. You're made for God to please Him. And if you're still in the flesh, if you're not saved, you're not a Christian, you're hostile to him. You cannot please him. 
Those that are still in the flesh and have their mind on the flesh, they're preoccupied with themselves. They want what they want, and pleasing God is far from their minds. In fact, what they want, how they live, and what they desire is ultimately what they use to try to justify their life. It's what they use to try to justify their existence. This is all they have. It's how they they develop a sense of worth and value for their life. They have to become their own savior. They have to become their own Lord. Let me give you an illustration from this. This is from another preacher, but he shares a story of Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Do Do you know those names? Two British men that came from a true story. Do you know the movie? Chariots of Fire. Came out in 1981. The story follows them in the 1924 Paris Olympics. And when the movie came out in 1981, the sister of Eric, Jenny, was still alive. If you don't know the story, Eric uh, was an incredible athlete. But after that, he went on to be a missionary in China and died in in a detention camp in China during World War II. But Jenny, who was also depicted in the movie, lived through throughout this time. And she had an interview that came out after the movie. And one of the things that she said, one thing that, that bothered her a little bit about the movie was that there's only one scene, one, one glimpse of this. And she says that the, the movie didn't show it every time, that whenever Eric, her brother, was this runner, a world-class runner, a sprinter, a 100-yard dash, and whenever Eric ran, he, he would always run with his face straight up to the sky and his mouth wide open, and he said he looked like a crazy man when he ran. And he always ran with his face smacked to the sky, facing directly up with his mouth open. He looked you know, eccentric. And why was he doing this? And they asked him, and he said, I'm worshiping. And Harold Abrams and Eric Little were both setting their minds in the same thing. They wanted to run. They wanted to win. They wanted to run and win a race, but for totally different reasons. Because when Harold Abrams was asked, why are you running? He described the 100-yard dash, and he said, essentially says, when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And what he's saying, he said, only if I can run this race and win, then I can be an accomplished athlete. Then I know I matter. Then I can face the world because I have accomplished this thing. Of course, if you've watched the movie or read the story, Eric, who says to Jenny in the movie, says, Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now listen, here's one guy and he's running to praise his savior. And here's the other guy who's running to be his own savior. This is what he said. There's one guy who's running for the sheer joy of it. It's icing the cake if he wins. Great. If he doesn't win, great, because he's already justified. His life is justified. And here's the other guy who's running and grinding and anxiety and churning and grinding down with anxiety and fear because he's seeking to be justified. And he says so in his own comments here. And by the way, if you know the movie, even after he wins, he finds it unsatisfying. Now, Harold knows that it's unsatisfying because idols never deliver. They never live up to what you think they will. 
And so to set the mind on the flesh isn't just having bad thoughts. It's, it's essentially to put your mind on anything other than Jesus Christ and to make other things your functional savior. You see, those that set their minds on the flesh are really trying to justify their existence in this world. They need to be their own savior. They reject God. They reject his way of salvation. They want their own way. But that's not how the Christian responds. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit is not an occasional visitor. The spirit takes up residence inside of God's people. He doesn't just pass by, friends, he lives in us. As believers, we have God living inside of us. And this should just bake your noodle. Right? Anyone who does not have the spirit of of Christ does not belong to him. Being a Christian is not merely a matter of adopting a new set of intellectual or theological beliefs. However, that does happen. But really, anyone can do that. Satan can do that. Satan probably knows more about God than you do, but he's not a Christian. Becoming a Christian means a change of state, which is not done by us, but by God who saves us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is not that a man just changes his beliefs and no more. No, he was in the realm of the flesh, and now he's in the realm of the spirit. He was dominated by the flesh before and governed by it. He is now in the realm which is governed and controlled and dominated by the Spirit. And as Christians, we have been delivered from one realm, one kingdom to the other. Colossians 1 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But Paul continues here in chapter 8 though, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... What does that mean? The fact that our physical bodies have the seeds of literal death in them and will eventually cease to live. And although our physical bodies will die and are, in a sense, as good as dead now, he says the spirit is life because of righteousness. Our our spirits have been made alive by the Holy Spirit whom the Father sent to do precisely that. As Christians, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're now made alive to God. He is now real to us. We know that he loves us and is watching over us. Because we're saved and the Spirit's given to us, we're now made alive to the Scriptures due to the Spirit's work in our lives. And we we might have found the Bible boring before, but now it comes alive as we read it, as we study it. Because the Spirit is there teaching us and, and applying it to us. And we're alive to other Christians because they're alive to God too. Now, this is simply amazing. Have you ever traveled somewhere for business or vacation and you go to church somewhere else besides your home church? And right away, you're bonded to someone else you never met before. But they're a Christian and you're connected. You're related. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, you never met them before. To me, it's astonishing. It really is the work of God. 
It's one of the, the greatest pleasures of being a member of a church. I see it every year. New believers come in, move into our, our area, and then come part of our church, and there's a connection right away. Friends, this is the Holy Spirit. The, the church is held together by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is because Jesus is in you, and it's connected to the Jesus that's in them. All because of the Spirit's work in making us alive into salvation. This is why you can't say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. It can't be true. It's like, to me, when I hear that, it's like if you were to come to me and say, Jeff, I like you, but I hate your wife. We have a problem. You can't say that. If I'm saved, then the Holy Spirit's in me. And if you're saved, the Holy Spirit's in you. And if the Holy Spirit's in you, it's not going to tell you. It's not going to teach you to have nothing to do with me. It won't happen. If the Holy Spirit's in you and the Holy Spirit's in me, he will cause us to love and to serve one another. The God in me will love the God in you. So you can't say, I don't want anything to do with them. God will not reject himself. It can't happen. We have been made alive by the Holy Spirit. We've been alive to, to him and to his word and to people in the church. And we have a future, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This voice, verse points us forward in one way to the future resurrection that is promised to us. We're, we're guaranteed to be raised again as Christians. The Spirit is the pledge. And so through these verses, we see that we have freedom from disappointment. But the last thing I want to bring to your attention, we have freedom from defeat. Verses 12 and 13. As believers, we have freedom from condemnation, no, no more fear of being cast away if we're in Christ and there's freedom from disappointment because of Christ and the last is freedom from defeat. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a violent streak to Christianity. And Paul gives us the details where that violence is pointed. It isn't at other people, it's not at things, it's ourselves, it's our sin. Verse 12, so then brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Remember, he's writing to believers. So is he saying that you can lose your salvation? Is that the end in, in Romans, that the only way to keep the course to heaven is to, is to kill sin? Is that what he's saying? No. no. Why does he write to Christians? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It is a result that he's announcing here. It's a, it's a litmus test. Paul is saying that if you live like a non-Christian, dominated by your sinful nature, unwilling to kill sin, and, the, and that sin that dwells in you, rather than living according to the Holy Spirit, you will perish like the non-Christian. Because you are a non-Christian. And the opposite. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Friends, you will know Christians by their fruit. Someone who is justified by faith alone apart from works cannot die in the, in the sense of eternal death, a separation from God. 
And how do I come to this understanding? You look down in chapter eight, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is where we see the link between justification and glorification. If you have been justified by faith, you will be glorified. That means you will one day pass from this life to eternity with glory to spend eternity with God. The link cannot be broken that we see here in verses 29 and 30, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. And so Paul is affirming to the church at Rome and to us this morning, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, meaning the daily practice of killing sin in your life is the result of being justified by faith alone apart from any work on your side. If you're making war on your sin and you're walking by the Spirit, then you will know that you have been united by Christ through faith alone. And if you've been united to Christ, then you can know that his blood and righteousness give you unshakable ground for your justification. It's not your works, it's Christ's work for you on the cross. But listen, on the other hand, if you're living in flesh, you're not making war on the flesh. You're not in the practice of killing sin in your life. And there's no really compelling reason to think that you're in Christ. You're a professor, not a possessor. When we, when we kill sin in our lives, it is not a way to get justified. It is one of the ways that God shows us that we're justified. And so Paul is teaching us here to be killing sin because if we don't, if we do not have the desire to make war against the flesh, the deeds of the body, if, if going, growing in grace and holiness means nothing to us, then there's a good reason to question if we've ever been saved. There's a reason to question your church attendance or your profession of faith at camp, or your church membership, or your baptism. We need to be putting to death the deeds of the body. It's not that we do it perfectly, but that we're warring against sin. And friends, killing sin is not the job of the unbeliever. God has to convert you first. God calls you to conversion before he calls you to mortify, to kill the flesh. I mean, if you were to drive by, you might laugh at a, a man that would build a house without a foundation, right? What if you're, man, if you're walking around, you walk around your neighborhood and you see this plot of land and, and your neighbor decides he's gonna buy it and build a house. And he's, he's there, he's sizing up the property, takes measurements, reads a book about building a house. He's ready to go. And begins to set the new structure. And he just starts setting up walls. Neil, how's that gonna work? Just leaning walls against each other. Hmm, I think this might work. And you look at it and go, no, that's going to fall. It won't last. And guess what? It doesn't. And yet he comes back to the house and shambles the next day and, and thinks, I, I guess I'd, I'll try again. He has no foundation. The same is for those that seek to kill their sin but have never been regenerated. They've never been converted. They've never been saved. It's a futile act. It, it won't work. They might make progress for one day or even the next, but it will all come crashing down. They, they have no foundation. They haven't built their life on Christ, and it will all come down. Jesus also says to us in Matthew 12, 33, if the tree is made good, its fruit will be good. But, but he also says, but if the tree is bad, the fruit will be 
bad. And a tree is known by its fruit. So, so how does a bad tree deal with having bad fruit? Do, do you take good fruit from the store and go nail it up to the bad tree? No, the root must be dealt with. The nature of the tree must be changed. So unless a person is regenerated, made new, they will continue to produce bad fruit. They will continue to sin and they won't be able to kill sin. They need to be saved. Remember, friends, this, this letter here, this, this chapter in, in particular is written to believers. We need to see the importance of killing sin. Do you see it yet? And John Owens writes, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. And we need to understand afresh this morning that the work of killing sin is for every believer that's seated here this morning. This is the job for every one of us. We cannot take a day off. We cannot take a vacation from it. This is war. Things will not get better if we ignore it. You know, a week ago, I was gone for vacation, camping with our family. And before I left, I knew that I had a mole in my backyard. How did I know? There was two big old holes. Now, you didn't understand. My backyard is tiny. I laid the sod last summer. It cost around 100 bucks, and it took me about an hour. Tiny yard. I love my little yard. It takes me three minutes to mow. But before we left, I realized this, that we had this mole, two big holes in my yard. But in the midst of all that I was doing, I chose to ignore it. Busy packing and getting ready, I ignored it. And honestly, foolishly, in the back of my mind, I thought, maybe it'll go away. <laughs> Came home after one week, eight more holes. I was about to go all Bill Murray on this creature, you know. I needed to kill it. And the sad thing is, friends, more angry at this mole than the sin that I've ignored in my life. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Owen writes, when sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone, but sin is always active when it seems to be the most quiet, and its waters are often deep when they're calm. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, and always seducing and tempting. And if sin is always acting, we're in trouble if we're not always mortifying. Do you really think that sin takes a day off? You really think that sin just sits back, sips on a drink, relaxing, watching Netflix for the night? You really think that sin will get bored and leave? Owen says, sin will not spare for one day. There is no safety but in a constant warfare for those who desire deliverance from sin's perplexing rebellion. There is a violent streak to Christianity. And I see so many Christians wandering, whining, and wondering what to do. And they continue in their sin. They don't see an issue with their sin. They continue it. They, they hate the consequences from their sin. 
They don't war against it. And life comes through warfare, not through making peace with sin. Sin will grow if left unchecked. Sin will not deny, will not die by itself unless it's daily killed. And if it's not killed, it will only gain more strength and deeper roots. Even small sin wants to be a big sin when it grows up. That's why Paul says later in chapter 13, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If we give sin an inch, it will take a mile. L. Martin writes, sin comes to us with modest proposals. Indulge me a little bit. But the child of God never forgets sin's real intentions. Every stirring of envy, if it had its way, would lead to murder and destruction. Every doubt of phrase of scripture, if it had its way, would lead to the ultimate denial of God and every truth of scripture. Every breathing pride in its first stirrings, if it had its way, would run and tear off the crown from God's head. And we need to strike at first the rising of sin, he says. Paul knew this to be true in Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And Paul knew this all too well, just a chapter earlier in Romans 7, verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Not if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my, my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. And what we read in Romans 7 is the sanctification process of the Apostle Paul. And Paul knew that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, the way we would no longer be enslaved to sin, as Romans 6.6. 6. And he charges us in Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, and passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he charges us to, to discipline our bodies and to keep them under control. Charles Spurgeon said of sin, he says, the sin is the world's worst tyrant. He said, sin had brought more plagues upon this earth than all of earth's tyrants. It has brought more pangs and more miseries upon men's bodies and souls and the craftiest inventions and the most cold-blooded. Sin is such a tyranny that none but those whom God delivers have been able to escape from it. Nay, such a tyranny that even they have been scarcely saved, and they, when saved, have had to look back and remember the dreadful slavery in which they once existed. Sin doesn't want to lift us up. It wants to put us down. Sin doesn't want to help us. It wants to destroy us. Sin can make a person physically sick. Psalm 32.3 Sin brings shame, Proverbs 11. Sin hinders prayer, 1 Peter 3. Sin squelches a believer's desire for the word, 1 Peter 2. Sin not only hurts the person sinning, but hurts those around them, and it makes it easier for them to sin also, Proverbs 22. Sin has no mercy. It laughs at our pain. It delights in our misery. 
And the only hope we have in this life is to kill sin. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And the question is, how do we kill sin? How do we do it? And Romans 8 gives us hope. Gives us hope to to know how to kill sin. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The only way to be killing sin is through the Holy Spirit that indwells you. He is the only way. And so practically, I have three steps that I hope would be a help to you. I'm sure maybe there's more, but there's three here I want to share as we end here. First, first step, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Do you notice back in verses five and six how Paul talks about the flesh and the spirit? He uses the same pair as he contrasts them here in verse 13. But look back in verse five. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds in the things of the spirit. And so the first step to killing sin by the power of the spirit is to set our minds in the things of the spirit. You cannot just look at temptation and say no. You absolutely have to do that, but that can't be it. You have to direct your mind, you have to direct your heart, your focus another way. And the opposite thing is that of the Spirit. So first step, first step is to set our minds in the things of the Spirit. Now, now what is the things of the Spirit? That's the second step. Set your mind on the Word of God. He said in verse 5, we're to set our minds in the things of the Spirit. And where do we find the things of the Spirit but God's Word? And we read of this in 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul talks about the teachings of God's Word as the things of the Spirit. These are the words spoken by God to the biblical writers that have given to us. These are the things that, are, that, that, that the natural man, the man of the flesh, will reject. But we, in the Spirit, are to listen, to take heed of these, and to build our obedience around them. In Ephesians, Paul gives us the armor of God in verse 17 in chapter 6. And he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The, the sword of who? The Holy Spirit, the the weapon against our flesh, against sin, is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And and what are swords used for, friends? To hang on the wall as decoration? Do we stick it in our yard as an ornament? What are they they used for? Just ask a little boy, okay? Just go to the Rice's home, hand them two plastic swords, and see what happens. What happens? What do boys do when they get a sword? They battle, they fight. There isn't any confusion in what happens with a sword. And the same thing with the word of God through the Holy Spirit. There's a a weapon against sin in our lives. We we kill sin by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit and setting our minds on the word of God and then taking that sword, the sword designed for killing sin, and use it against ourselves. I, I told you Christianity is violent. And it was based upon blood. You know that, right? And the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God that kills our sin. The last step is by hearing with faith, not by the works of the law. So very practically, what do you do to bring the power of the Spirit of the Word of God into robust sin-killing action? The answer is in Galatians 3.5. Let me read it for you. Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so, by the, do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Let me answer Paul's questions here. Does God provide for the spirit of, uh, for the mighty killing of sin by the works of the law? Is, is that how? No, absolutely not. It's through the hearing by faith. You see it? And why does he say hearing by hearing with faith instead of just by faith? I believe to show us that faith hears and receives and now embraces something that was heard, words that were heard, primarily the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, so that we can now kill sin. So when temptation comes and it comes, you can say no and you can look to God and you set your mind on the word of God. And friends, that means you need to know it. You need to read it. You need to memorize it. And then you can use the word of God as the sword with the Spirit's help to kill sin. You sever the root of sin. You kill sin. What's your response this morning? Are you a conscientious objector? You know what that means? It speaks of a person who, for reasons of conscience, objects to serving in armed forces. My wife and I saw a movie a, a year ago called Hacksaw Ridge of a man, a religious man, who when drafted to the war was a conscientious objector, who when drafted to go to war was, a, was, was refusing to kill anyone. He, he refused to go to battle with the tools to defeat the enemy. He was a pacifist. And I suspect that there are conscientious objectors here this morning. And your life has been that of refusing to go to war. You do all that you can to exempt yourself from war. You hide, you whine, you make excuses, and you run. And you won't go to war. Are you a pacifist? I pray that this is not you and our church. And may we see again this morning the implications of this passage and rely upon the gospel as our strength to kill sin daily and to keep killing sin until Jesus comes back. And why should we do this? Why do we do this? There's one little phrase that I skipped over here in verse 12, right at the beginning. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. Do we understand this? We are, we are debtors to Christ. We owe him our lives. He's given everything for us. If you're a Christian here this morning, remember afresh that Christ died for you. And killing sin is based upon the death of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.14, Christ, Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This was his aim, his intention for giving himself for us. He died that we might be freed from the power of sin of our lives and he was crushed so that we could be purified from our, all this defiling lust in our life. We will kill sin because we love Christ. And Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that would be holy without blemish. I pray that this is our response this morning 
and they would take the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and kill the sin that lurks in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, you know, you know every single one of us here this morning. You know the, the difficulty and in, in even the trouble that this text has brought to my heart and exposing sin in my life this week. And God, of the times that I needed to confess and forsake and prepare to do battle, to kill sin. And I pray that that would be the same response for all believers here this morning. They would be sensitive to the conviction that you bring upon their souls this morning. And Father, I pray for those that are seated here this morning that do not know you. Maybe they recognize and see their sin and are trying to, to, to remove that, but there is no foundation there is no relationship with you. And all of their work is futile. And I pray that you would save them. That you would regenerate them. You would make them new. And your promise in your word is that when you do, you send yourself to indwell them. To give them the power to defeat sin in their life. Lord, we recognize this morning more than ever that we need you. We need you. Every hour, God, we need you. And as we, we sing this song to end our service, God, remind ourselves again, we so desperately need you. We need your strength. We need your word. We need you in all of life. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.